Okay, um, good morning everyone. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. Very warm welcome to you. If you have a Bible, please could you go to the book of Leviticus. Book of Leviticus chapter 1. That's where we're going to get to in just a moment. This week, uh, Tuesday, just gone, we had our church prayer meeting. Church at Prayer, where we don't meet in life groups that way, we all come together to pray. It was a fantastic time. We prayed particularly for healing, for God to break out in healing amongst us, which was wonderful. But we tried something different this um, time. We, um, we meet on Zoom just because it's been easier with COVID, blah, blah, blah. Um, we've been praying there. But what we did now, we can meet in homes and do that. We've got, had life groups actually gathering together in a home, but then being on a screen as part of the meeting. So when we went into breakout rooms to pray, they just got to pray with the people in the room with them. And that was an outstanding success. I think we had three groups as well as all the other individuals on our meeting, and it was a great time. So we're going to try that again. Next one will be in three weeks, two weeks, three weeks. Dates will come out. Um, but try that in your life group. Talk to your life group with how some of us can gather together in the room. You're part of the meeting. But when we say go pray about this, you pray together with your group in the room. And the feedback from those people who did that said it was brilliant just to pray with people in a room as part of the wider church prayer meeting. So that was an excellent time um, this week. Now, what we're going to do today, we last week started a new sermon series entitled Into His Presence from the book of Leviticus. Um, Into His Presence sums up really what the book of Leviticus is about. If you've never read it, it tells us that God is holy, which means he is set apart, he is other, he is different. That word holy or references to it occurs over 80 times in the book of Leviticus. It's a study as you read through to mark those in your Bible when it mentions God's holiness. But it also says that, that man is sinful. That we have fallen short of God's glory. We aren't holy. We are, we are polluted and corrupted by sin. And so the big question of the Bible up to this point from uh, Genesis where the story began was how can sinful man approach a holy God? How can sinful man approach a holy God? Because in the beginning, in the garden, it was all good. There was uh, Adam and Eve and there was God and they dwelt together in harmony and fellowship and it was, everything was working out. Man rebelled, man sinned, and it went wrong from all that point. And the trajectory of Genesis and Exodus is answering that question. And we get to the beginning of Leviticus, and we find um, these verses, which we can compare with the beginning of the book of Numbers. So Ruth, if you throw those up there, it says this. It says uh, Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And then we go to Numbers 1.1. If you flick over to the next book in the Bible, it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So there's been a transition from outside to inside the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting was the place where God's presence dwelled. And so Moses had moved into his presence. This question had been answered. How does sinful man approach a holy God? And what we're going to look at as we go through the book of Leviticus is we're going to look at this question being answered as God lays down uh, the laws and the rituals and the sacrifices that we put, uh, that's been put in there. And uh, I gave you some homework last week that Ben alluded to, but it'd be good to listen to the first seven chapters because that's what we're going to try and cover today. Uh, there was also a couple of videos that were helpful just to help get your head around it because if you're a Christian and been a Christian any, any time, the book of Leviticus is probably one that you've avoided in your Bible because it's a bit weird, it's a bit you know, odd, and it's not exactly page-turning reading sometimes, can be a bit um, you know, dry and repetitive, but we found that actually there's lots of good stuff in there and we're going to look at it today. So if you put up the structure, Ruth, what we're going to look at here is we looked last time at the structure of the book of Leviticus. And how it's built in a symmetrical structure that all runs down to chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. 
uh, and that is the most important one. We're going to be looking at that in a few weeks' time. Make sure we're here for chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. But what we're going to do is break it up into chunks to help us, uh, and they work in this symmetry. So what we're going to look at is the first seven chapters today. So we're going to be flying through this. And so if you've got a Bible, if you've got a physical Bible, remember those books we called them? They're almost more helpful in this because you can flick through them quickly as we kind of go through sections and jump around. They're more helpful. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go over those chapters. We're going to see what it meant for Israel. We're going to see how it points to Jesus. And then we're going to draw some conclusions for us here today now. So first bit, first couple of verses of um, the book of Leviticus where the Lord commissions a sacrificial system because the first seven chapters... Leviticus are all about the sacrifices that the people of God were to bring before God. And it says in Leviticus 1 verse 1 and 2, it says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now what we've got at the outset here is God speaking The Lord is commanding Moses for instructions for the people of Israel. And so when we look at these sacrifices, when we look at the book of Leviticus and everything going forward, this is God's divinely appointed word to his people. This isn't the institutes of man, so the group of guys or girls sat around together and think, let's work out how we can deal with God. No, this is God telling man, this is how you approach me. This is how you deal with the fact that you're sinful and I'm holy. He is the one who's put this into place. And if you go through chapters 1 to 7, you'll find nine times this phrase again, the Lord spoke, the Lord spoke. He's the one putting these things in place. And chapters 1 to 7 detail five types of offerings, five types of sacrifices that will be brought before God. They were the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, sometimes called the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. That's five. That's what they are. And the first three of those were voluntary acts that the people of God were to bring, and the last two were actually were for particular reasons when violations had been occurred to God's law and the people had to bring them. The first three resulted in the pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's another phrase that comes up and up again in this section. If you listen to it, you'll have heard that repeatedly. That's another thing. If you study the section, mark where it says those, and you'll see that refrain coming up again and again. The last two resulted in the person bringing the offering being forgiven before the Lord. Now, these uh, sacrifices all took place before the tabernacle, uh, which was the tent of meeting, which was in the center of the people of Israel. And we've got a kind of a picture up here, if I move to the side, have a little look, of an artist's impression. Because in the book of Exodus, which comes before Leviticus, uh, it's written down how uh, they would produce the um, uh, sort of furniture that went in the tabernacle and how they were built it. And it was basically it was a tent and the people of Israel all dwelt around it. And so when all these sacrifices were brought, they were brought to the tabernacle where the priests would deal with them. And so that was the place where God's presence were right in the center of the camp and that's where it would all take place. And it's not explicitly mentioned or dealt with because it's already been dealt with in Exodus, but that's where everything has been happened. And we're going to look at these five sacrifices and we're going to break them into three groups. We're going to look at commitment to the Lord, Communion with the Lord and cleansing from the Lord. So the first bit, commitment to the Lord or commitment to God. And the first two offerings were the burnt offering and the grain offering. The burnt offering, which is basically chapter 1. The purpose of the burnt offering was to honor God and attract his attention. It was an act of worship. 
It was an act of worship. It's actually already been mentioned in the Bible. It comes up twice in Genesis, once in Exodus, and once in Job, which chronologically is before uh, Leviticus. So it's been around, and it was is considered by commentators the most important offering because, one, it's named first, and also, according to Numbers 28, it's actually done twice daily, morning and evening. So in terms of sheer number, this is the one that happens the most. And it was an act of worship on the part of the offerer, and the offering uh, depended on, you could either bring an oxen or something from the flock, a sheep or a goat, or birds or pigeons or turtle doves, um, it says. And the reason for those was depending on the financial resources of the worshipper. If you had more, you could bring more. If you had less, you brought less. And it was a way to not exclude anyone from the worship of God. The worship of God. I think we look forward into the New Testament and we see Mary and Joseph. They brought offering and they brought um, two birds, which shows where they were in the financial bracket of the system. Jesus came from a poor family. That's what they brought. But they were then not excluded from the worship of God as part of God's people. These animals were brought to the um, tabernacle. They were to be without defect. So that you couldn't give your sick and wounded animal. Oh, we've got the ga- one with the gammy leg in the herd. Let's go and give that one as an offering so we don't have to look after it. It says, no, no, you bring your best to God. So, so you bring the best animal that you can and you brought it. And then the worshiper would place their hands on the head of the animal. The animal would be the substitute for the worshiper. The animal would then be killed and burnt before the Lord. The result, it says, is a pleasing aroma to God. And what this says is, is worship is costly, but worship is a voluntary act. So the worship would choose to come and worship the Lord, and they would bring something that would then cost them. And it would remind the worshiper of their commitment and their love and their devotion to the Lord. And so that was the burnt offering. Then after that, we have chapter 2. We have the grain offering. And the grain offering was a gift to the Lord. And it consisted of five possible options. You could bring fine flour. You could bring oven-baked cakes, cakes baked in a pan, cakes baked on a griddle, or crushed uh, roasted heads of new grain. So they're all basically the same thing. It's just prepared slightly different ways. But you brought this gift um, of grain to the Lord, and the part of the offering was burnt, and the other part of the offering was actually given to the priests who ministered at the tabernacles. Tab- sorry, the tabernacle. And the uh, people's offering then provided for those who served because the priests would have been there all the time. They wouldn't have had time to go and do the other things to work and provide. So they, the people came and brought something for the Lord, but actually the priests were provided for as well. And it says and there were some stipulations. He said you couldn't use honey or leaven. These were prohibited. Uh, they're not totally sure why because it doesn't say. Um, uh, scholars debate this and they say it could be because honey and leaven cause fermentation and decay and so they actually change the nature of the offering and another reason could be that they were used in pagan practices around about and Israel was to be separate and was to be different set apart a holy people so they weren't allowed but what did have to happen is all of them had to be seasoned with salt and it's described in verse 13 there as the salt of the covenant the reason for that is salt um, is a preservative and it actually cannot be destroyed by fire and it does not decay. And so it was a signifier of the covenant with God and his people which was uh, durable and eternal and God wouldn't let that um, fall apart. That that's why there was the, um, the salt was in it and the grain, the grain offering was a gift to God and it honoured God that actually he was the source of all life and all of the, the things that were grown and the harvest and like he was the source of it. He was the one who brought it. And so in returning that to God was a, an acknowledgement that God was the one of the source for and the worshipper offered their best to God. So the fruit of one's labour, which would have been the result of the harvest, 
that in turn was then offered to God as an act of worship. And so those two, the burnt offering and the grain offering, were voluntary um, acts of God's people, and they signified their commitment to God. Next, we have communion with God, which is the peace offering or fellowship offering. This is in chapter 3. This is another voluntary offering. Um, and it's often associated with the burnt offering, which came first, and it often followed the burnt offering. They, did, they gave the burnt offering, then they had the peace one. And it's in, again, there were three types of offerings. You could bring something from the herd, something from the flock, or something from the goats. And what was distinctive about this one is that the offerer could partake in a meal of the animal that had been bought. So in the burnt offering, the animal was consumed. But in this one, actually, the person who's bringing it got to eat with it. And there was um, an expression of a shared meal. You were effectively sharing a meal with God. You were giving part of it to God that was being burnt, and then you were eating part um, as well. And the animal was brought um, to, in the tabernacle where the priests were. The hands were placed on the head of the animal. Uh, the animal was killed. The, um, offering, um, sorry, the blood was applied to the altar uh, as, a, as an acknowledgement of substitute there. And the best parts of the animal... The nice parts, the choice cuts of meat, were then put on the altar and burnt. So God got the best. So the animal was bought, both people took part, but God was acknowledged and honored as having the best. And that was then burnt and created a a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And what we have there is we have an act of sacrifice, which then brings fellowship with God. Because the animal acted as a substitute for the person that was burnt, and then there was fellowship because there was meat. food and enjoyment and a meal together. So then we have cleansing from God, which were the final two uh, um, sacrifices, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And these were not voluntary. These were compulsory in particular um, ways when violations of God's uh, commands, God's covenant had been um, transgressed and there'd been stuff that needed to be dealt with. And the point of them was to, that, that man was guilty of their sin and sin needed to be dealt with. And sin with and God graciously was providing a way for man to come to him even though God was the offended party. God's the one who's been offended. Sin is against him. And he's saying, actually, I'm going to make a way so you can come to me. You can have relationship with me. The terms guilt, sin, atonement, forgiveness dominate these chapters. Um, and they've been absent in the previous, previous ones we've looked at. Sin, I've, I looked up, is mentioned over 100 times in Leviticus. Sin means to miss the mark. It means the violation of a covenant means going astray. astray. And this is what the people of God were guilty of. Uh, the passage talks about it. If you listen to it um, this week, it t- uses the term either inadvertent or unintentional sin to describe what's happening. And that's got a wide range of meanings. It can mean uh, when you, you sin, it can either be through, you can sin through ignorance, uh, you can sin through carelessness, um, you can sin through weakness, you can sin through frailty. And that kind of covers all those ways that we sin and get things wrong before the Lord. And the sinner then could become aware of their sin either through their conscience realizing, oops, I've done something wrong. They're being prompted. It could be read through reading God's law. They read it and suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I've done something wrong. Or it could be pointed out by someone else, someone in the community, someone in the family of God, saying actually what you've done is transgressed God's law. And, and the, these offerings were then designed to put it right. And it underlined the fact that there was no excuse for sin, that guilt is a real condition, that everyone will fail at some point. And so these offerings were put in to cover man's sin and deal with that problem. And at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 4, sorry, we have the sin offering. 
And what this does, one, this, the focus of it, if you read it, actually focuses on um, all possible groups of Israel to underline that all people sin and they all make mistakes. If you go through it, you have the intro in the first few verses, and then it talks about the sins of the high priest, the sins of the congregation, all the people, uh, the sins um, of a ruler within the congregation, someone with authority, and the sins of the individual, and then it talks about sins in very specific ways. And the emphasis there is actually that everyone makes mistakes, no matter what position you are in the hierarchy of God's people, in kind of the management of God's people, and depending on which position you occupy, depending on what you brought as a sacrifice to atone for your sins. And the higher you were up, the more responsibility you held, so to speak, the bigger and the more expensive the offering. Because if you were the high priest and you sinned, you had to bring a bull. If you were in the congregation, you also had to bring a bull. So that would cover the whole congregation. If you were a ruler, it was a male kid. If you were an individual, it was a female kid or a lamb or two pigeons or doves or fine flour, depending on your economic status. But it degraded down depending on where you are. And the offerer had to identify with the offering again by laying their hands on it, confess their sins, confess what had been done, and that then was sacrificed. The animal was slain and the blood was offered to God um, because uh, to atone for the sin. If you're one of the leaders of God's people, you're the high priest, the blood was actually taken inside of the tabernacle and sprinkled in there just to underline the seriousness of it. And if you're in a position of responsibility when you sin, it has much greater consequences. But the result of the sacrifice was forgiveness. And it underlines that and again. Once you've done this, you are forgiven before God. The slate is wiped clean. You have, it has been, the sin has been atoned for. And then it comes to the last one, the guilt offering. Uh, starts in chapter 5, verse 14, rolls into chapter 6. And this offering was for two particular kinds of sin. It was sin against the holy things of God, whether it was uh, the sacrifices, whether it was the celebrations, holy days. And the second one was it specifically if you sinned against your neighbor. So you lied about them. You took something from them, you deceived them, whatever it was, it was a particular um, offering because of the guilt that had been incurred for that. Again, the sinner had to confess their sin, and this one they got fined. They had to repay whatever they'd taken from their neighbor or whatever, they had to pay it back plus 20% to underline the seriousness of what it was to um, sin against one another, sin against God's people. So they had to take the sacrifice, and then had to take the, the, um, their money, the fine, if you will, and they had to take that to the priest, and that would uh, make restitution. And it underlined the fact that sin was serious, but actually true repentance means you want to put things right. If you're truly sorry because you've hurt or upset someone, you've damaged someone, you want to put it right. And so this is the, the offering that kind of underlines that. And the ram and the fine were given to the priest. Um, and then the sacrifice was placed on the altar and reminding us again of how costly sin is. And then as a result of the death of the substitute animal, the offender was forgiven, forgiven and forgiveness comes. And so there are the five offerings that are mentioned in that opening section there of Leviticus. Um, three voluntary, two um, compulsory on, based on certain circumstances. And then the final part of the um, section ends where it flips everything around. So we talked about the people of God and what they are to bring. 
The last part, uh, the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, actually looks from the other end of what the priests have to do because the priests were on the other side. They were the ones receiving these offerings. So you've told the people, well, that's what you've got to do. And so it ends with actually, well, what have the priests got to do? And we're going to deal more with the priests next week because they're in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But the priests were responsible for then administering these offerings and administering these sacrifices and taking from the people what they brought. So they had a really high responsibility in this. And the priests had to do five things within it. First one, they had to keep the fire burning because the offerings were put on an altar and burnt. And the altar stood in the outer part there of um, where the tabernacle was and there was a fire in there. And one of the priest's job was to keep the fire burning so that when a member of the congregation brought their sacrifice, they were ready to roll. And it represented God's presence among them. That continual presence of God was there. He is the consuming fire. He is the one there. Uh, And it was a constant reminder. And that was part of their duty to be at the tabernacle ministering all the time, making sure that the fire was burning. They were to keep the aroma pleasing. They were to keep the aroma pleasing. When they performed the offerings, they were to do it in the right order and the YA, that that when the offerer brought their their sacrifice, that the aroma was pleasing to God because they had fulfilled their duties well and they had done their well. And within that, you can find a little bit about the ordination offering, which we'll deal with more next week, um, that they had to bring when they were appointed as priests. And so they had to make sure that worship was there and done well and done rightly and done properly. Because if we go back to the commandments we give, just given in Exodus, one of the commandments is you, you worship God the right way. He says you don't make idols. There's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. And the priests were to minister that and make sure that that was done well. They were to keep the holy things safe. Uh, in reference to the offerings, um, what they were handling, they were handling with due reverence. They were considered holy, these gifts to God and what they'd done. And the priests had to handle that rightly. There was a great responsibility for them, particularly with the blood from the sacrifice and when it was put on the altar. They had to do that well, had to do that rightly um, before the Lord or they became guilty. They had to also keep the other priests supplied because when offerings were brought some of them they could take for themselves and it had to be shared among the other priests to make sure everyone got something to eat everyone was fed during their duties if you're working there all day keeping the fire running through the night someone's got to make sure you've got food and so when the offerings came in and they were split and they got they had to make sure everyone got um, their their share of that so they could keep going and they had to keep the fellowship pure They had to make sure that everything was done right and in order and they were kept richly pure and richly clean. And we'll deal more with that when we get to the sections that Matt's going to do, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, deal with ritual purity on that. So they had a great responsibility. And if you go right to the end of that section, you look at um, chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. It's kind of a summary statement of everything that has gone before. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, which we'll deal with next week, and then the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai. On the day he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And so what we have there is a summary of that section, which demarks where kind of a section of Leviticus is ending, and we're moving on to the next section next week. And they remind the people that that God, um, these um, come from God, these are God's idea, these are God's instructions, and this is what allows sinful men and women come into the presence of a holy God, to come and worship him rightly, to come and make atonement for their sin, to have fellowship with him. And the people of God have learned that worship is costly, and is it response to God's saving work, because in the context of the book of Leviticus, what has just happened? 
Well, they've just come out of Egypt where they've been slaves for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And God has redeemed them by his mighty hand. Plagues parted the Red Sea, brought them out to Mount Sinai where his presence has dwelled. He's given them the law, the commandments. And he's saying, this is, I'm the God who saved you. I'm the God who brought you out of slavery. And the right response to that is worship. And worship is a costly, voluntary act where we totally commit ourselves to the Lord. The sacrifices also remind the people of God that everything they had comes from him. Everything they own, everything they grow, everything in their herds and flocks all belong to him. So when they give to him, they're giving back to God what is rightfully his anyway. And God graciously allows them to keep some of it so they can live and, and, ha- and do life. We find out that God wants his people to have fellowship, wants him to know him, to come and have meals with him, have share with him. And that's a picture of closeness and intimacy. And that's what these Leviticus teaches us. We find that sin is a terrible offense against the holy God and must be dealt with before mankind can approach safely. But God has graciously provided a way with substitutes. And so through all these things, men and women, sinful men and women can come into the presence of God. And all these things finally and totally and completely point forward. They were there for Israel back in that time so the people of God could come before God. But they were merely shadows. They were merely temporary. They pointed forward to a substance. They pointed towards something bigger and stronger and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfills all those offerings. We don't have to bring them now. You didn't all come in here today with your pulling your sheep along with you, with your fresh-cooked cake to burn on a fire. We don't have that because Jesus has fulfilled it all. He is the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that did away with any need for the temple, any need for the tabernacle, any need for the curtain that separated man from God. It was separated. It was ripped at his death. And he is the perfect burnt offering who truly and completely yielded to the Father's will who completely gave himself to God, was totally devoted, totally committed to the Lord's plans and purposes. He was the perfect grain offering that was crushed and put through fire for our sake and for our sin. And through that, we get life. Jesus said he was the bread of life, which we can partake in and enjoy. He is the perfect fellowship offering that we can have intimate relationship with him. He suffered. He went through the painful famine that we don't have to, and we can feast and enjoy the presence of God. The sin and the guilt offering, he bore our sins fully in his body when he hung on the cross. He took the righteous wrath of God. He was our perfect lamb who took away the sin of the world without defects, spotless, who died on that cross. So we don't have to bring them because he is the perfect guilt and the perfect sin offering for us. We have one sacrifice made once for all time so that whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus can come before God, have their sins dealt with, and have fellowship with him forever. And that is wonderful news. Jesus has fully and completely fulfilled the sacrificial system we read there in Leviticus. And as we read it, as you listen to it, it should stir your heart with worship and wonder where you see glimpses of Jesus as the lamb is brought before the priest, as it is killed, as his body is put on the altar and burnt and consumed, that all points to Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. So to finish, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us here today, right now? Three things I just want to throw out to you, something to think about as we finish our time together, as we worship, as we go into this new week God's given us. Number one, 
Because of Jesus' sacrifice, our sin and guilt have been dealt with. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, our sin and guilt have been dealt with. Jesus came to earth as God the Son. He lived the perfect life. He died in our death, in our place. He took the sin, uh, the punishment of sin that we deserve, rightfully, the wrath of God that is on us for all the times we've belittled and rebelled against God. So we transgressed his laws. We've gone our own way. And because of that, we can know him and we can be with him. If we repent of our sin, if we turn away from living our own life, we put our faith and trust in him, we can know salvation. We can know fellowship with Jesus. If you're not a believer here, you need to take that very seriously. You need to know that a way is open for you. Sin is real. Guilt is real. Righteous judgment is real. But there is a way if you come to Jesus where you can put your faith and trust in him and be forgiven. If you are a believer here and you're a follower of Jesus and you're a Christian, rejoice in that, that you don't have to do these sacrifices because God has provided a way through Christ. He has made you righteous and holy. All the things in Leviticus that talk about you've got to be holy, you've got to do this. These things are set apart. If you're a Christian, that's who you are. God has said you are holy, you are righteous, you are a saint. Not because you're clever, or you're smart, or you, you, you made a decision. It's because God has done it through Jesus' death on the cross, and he has gifted his righteousness to you. So we can stand before a holy God now. We don't need to bring sacrifice because one has come. All we do is we stand on what God has done for us, and we say, thank you, Lord, and we worship and we celebrate him. But that doesn't stop us making mistakes messing up and when we do we need to come back to God we need to confess our sin we don't try and earn our way back in we just stand on what Jesus Christ has done for us and we confess our sins and God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we do that and if you know there's something in your life that you need to get right with God do it right now confess it to God say sorry repent turn put your trust in him don't wait he's waiting for you second thing Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have fellowship with him and his family. We have fellowship with him in his family. We can have relationship with God. Just stand back and think what that means. Think about the people of Israel on that image we had. with a. There was probably a million people in the camp. And in the middle, there was this little tent with a little wall around it and if you wanted to have that fellowship with God you had to bring your animal and you had to come before the tent and the priests had to do their thing but the presence of God was inside the tent and you couldn't go in there only the priests could go in there and they couldn't even go into the really holy bit only one priest could do that once a year well look at that in chapter 16 we couldn't we, it was there but we weren't there but now because of Jesus we can have a relationship with God wherever we are whoever we are we don't have to go anywhere We don't have to do anything. We can just cry out to God and he's there. We can come before him in prayer anywhere, anytime and cry out to him. Say, God, we need help. We need mercy. We need grace. We need guidance. We need deliverance. We need healing. We need provision. And we can call out to him because of what God has done for us. We can find that. We can hear his voice in his word. When we read his word, when we study his word, when we we take time to to look at it and process it and think about it. We're reading through the Gospel of Mark as a church, aren't we, Christmas of the Cross? I think this week is chapter four. Is that right? Hopefully. Matt will tell us there'll be a video coming out. We're reading chapter four together. We're reading it with our boys every night. We've just finished chapter three in line for chapter four this week. We get to read it and hear God's voice in his word. 
We get to hear God's voice in his word. Homework this week, I was always said I was going to set you homework. Have a listen to uh, Leviticus chapters 8, 9, and 10. This week, go for a walk. Stick them in your ears. Have a listen, because that's what we're going to look at next week. Listen to God's voice. What's he speaking to you? What's he telling you about him? What's he telling you about you? What's he telling you about life and how you should live it here? We can hear his voice. We can cry out to him. But we're also part of God's family, the church. We get to be, have fellowship with him. The meal that they were to eat in the fellowship offering was to be shared. It was shared with the priests. It was shared with their family. That They got to be part of the wider family of God. And we get to do that. We get to join together and be people together on a mission. God doesn't design us to be Christians who walk alone in all that we do. We're meant to be part of a wider church family. Whether it's this family or you're part of another church family somewhere. It doesn't matter. Be part of a church family together. It is a beautiful thing. Um, yesterday, Saturday, I had a fantastic day, but we had a, a really good church family day because in the morning, my life group, uh, the Andrew uh, and Becca lead, who are up on the stage, I'm in that life group. Uh, Andrew said, Right, we're going to have a men's breakfast. See you at Weatherspoons, 10 30 a.m. And that went out on the, the WhatsApp. Who's going to join me? Oh boy, did the men reply quickly. Normally, men not the best replying at the WhatsApp messages. It was suddenly, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And there were six of us there. 10.30 yesterday morning, men's breakfast. It was fantastic. Fellowship and food and just enjoying being men of God together. Uh, then in the afternoon, we went out with some friends from the church and we went out with the kids and we had a great fun. We ended up bowling, 10-pin bowling. Do you know what? Not as good as I remember. Not as good as I remember. The kids were laughing at me because they have the bumpers up so their ball doesn't go in the gutter. Mine went in the gutter a lot. And I got, I got called names, to be honest. But it was a wonderful... It was a wonderful time. And then in the evening, the leadership team, we just got together and we just had a meal and we hung out and it was just wonderful. And it was wonderful to have fellowship and that's what we get to enjoy as the people of God. We get to enjoy fellowship with God. We also get to enjoy fellowship with his people, which is just a beautiful thing. And we have life groups as part of the church which help us connect because Sunday's great. It has a purpose. We love it, but it doesn't fulfill everything we need. And so we have smaller contexts. We want you to get to know each other, build deeper relationship. Fantastic. Last one. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we worship him in a voluntary and costly way. A voluntary and costly way. In response to what God has done, in response to how he's made a way to get to know him, in response to all the, the gifts and the grace and the mercy he's poured into our life, there is only one response, which is worship. Worship and praise of his goodness and grace. And we thank him and we honor him continually like the fire that burned in the tabernacle for all that he has done for us. And Leviticus teaches us what worship of God is like. First of all, it is voluntary. We choose it. It's not something we do under compulsion. It's not something we get dragged towards. It's something we willingly do in every area of our life. We willingly praise him. We willingly praise him as part of the, the gathered people of God, but we willingly praise him when we go out into our life and we go into our families and our homes and our workplaces. We willingly praise him by how we do our jobs, how we live our lives, how we work in our families. We praise him by singing songs to him and serving others around us, and we do that willingly and voluntarily. And we also find that worship is costly. If worship doesn't cost you something... It's not worship. If it doesn't require something for you, even coming here on a Sunday morning to this awesome church to hear fantastic musicians and a standout preacher, it's still a cost. 
Because you have to get up, you've got to drag yourself out of bed, you've got to get the kids ready. If you've got kids, you've got to drive here, find a park. You've still got, you've got a mask on. It's still, because we're well ventilated, you notice, still a bit nippy in here. You know, it still costs, and even then you've got to get up and you've got to engage with the song when your mind is being dragged somewhere else. It costs you to worship. It costs you. Give it our time. We've got people who are kids' workers standing up here. They worship God. They love it. So it costs them in how they serve our young people and children. It costs us to worship God. It costs us to what we do. It costs us financially because we worship God with our money. And if you notice through all those sacrifices, every sacrifice they had cost them something. And it cost them money. If it was written today, it would have a, an amount on it. But for them, their money was their animals and the, their produce... That's how they traded with each other. That's, that's, that was their financial wealth. But every sacrifice meant they had to give some of that up. And one of the ways we worship God is with our money. Tell, show me your bank out. I'll show you what you worship. Where does it go? Where is it being split up? And the word of God is clear on that, that we are to give financially of what we've had. If you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, that is your response to God. And we say, what we use as a guide in this church is 10%. That's great. You tithe, that's your starting point, baseline. For most of us who earn well, we're a nice middle class area, we go up from that point in what we give. But it's meant to cost us our worship. There are stories in the Bible. There was a story of King David where he was to bring a burnt offering before the Lord and someone gave him one of his animals and said, you can have my cow to offer to the Lord. And David as the king and the guy gave it to him, he you're the king, I'm going to give that to you. And David turned around and said, I will not offer to God what costs me nothing. He says, I will pay for the animal and then I will sacrifice it. Because I'm not going to give to God what costs me nothing. What about the woman who came before Jesus with a dodgy reputation? And she wept at his feet. And what did she do? She broke the alabaster jar with the perfume. And people stood around and said, that's a year's wages. And Jesus said, you know, she's worshipping me, shut up. I'm paraphrasing. You know what I mean. And that is written down for us 2,000 years. We're still reading it. That was an act of worship. Worship is costly. And so we are to be the men and women of God who worship God in a costly way. We recognize it's built on his sacrifice. We're not trying to earn anything because he's made the way. We enjoy fellowship with him. We enjoy fellowship with his people. And we respond in worship, crying out to his goodness and his grace and saying, God, we love you. We thank you. We are committed to you. We are going to give our lives to you. And God's people said, amen, amen. Do you want to stand up? The band want to come back. We're going to give ourselves in worship to the Lord. Now, we're singing and praise, and we'll see what God does with us. Maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hand, and I'm just going to pray and lead us, and then I'll hand over to John and the team, and we'll sing a little bit. Lord God, I want to thank you First and foremost, for your word, I want to thank you for what we read in the book of Leviticus. I want to thank you for what it teaches us. And I want to start by saying thank you that we don't have to do that because of what you've done. Thank you for the lessons it teaches, but we thank you that your death and resurrection ended that system. You fulfilled it. The shadow was replaced by the substance which is who you are. We thank you for your perfect life. We thank you uh, for your death and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you opened the way and said, come, come to me, come to me, come to me. 
And all we have to do is respond in faith, in repentance, and say, God, we, we can't do this. We, we need you. And we, we put our faith and we trust in you and we cry out to you for mercy and forgiveness. Lord, even when we've messed up this week, this day, this morning, Lord, we say, forgive us, restore us to relationship with you. Thank you that we are holy and righteous before you. And we're going to stand here as your people and say, we are going to worship you, Lord. We're going to do it now, and we're going to do it tomorrow and the next day, and we're going to do it voluntarily, willingly, and costly before you, Lord. We want to say we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You are awesome, you are amazing. And God's people said, amen, amen.